2 Samuel chapter number 8. We're looking at the entire chapter, all 18 verses. And so let's begin reading here at verse number 1. 2 Samuel uh, chapter 8 and verse number 1. After this, it came to pass that David attacked the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Metheg, Amma, from the hand of the Philistines. Then he defeated Moab, forcing them down to the ground. He measured them off with a line. With two lines, he measured off those to be put to death, and with one full line, those to be kept alive. So the Moabites became David's servants, and they brought tribute. David also defeated Hadad-Ezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, as he went to recover his territory at the river Euphrates. David took from him 1,000 chariots, 700 horsemen, 20,000 foot soldiers. Also, David hamstrung all the chariot horses, except that he spared enough of them for 100 chariots. When the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadad-Ezer, king of Zobah, David killed 22,000 of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus, and the Syrians became David's servants and brought tribute. So the Lord preserved David wherever he went, and David took the shields of gold that had belonged to the servants of Hadad-Ezer and brought them to Jerusalem, also from Beda and from Barathai, cities of Hadad-Ezer. King David took a large amount of bronze. When Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated all the army of Hadad-Ezer, Toy sent Joram, his son, to King David to greet him and bless him because he had fought against Hadad-Ezer and defeated him. For Hadad-Ezer had been at war with Toy. And Joram brought with him articles of silver, articles of gold, articles of bronze. King David also dedicated these to the Lord, along with the silver and gold that he had dedicated from all the nations which he had subdued, from Syria, Moab, from the people of Ammon, from the Philistines, from Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadad-Ezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. And David made himself a name when he returned from killing 18,000 Syrians in the valley of Salt near the Dead Sea. He also put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom, he put garrisons. And all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord preserved David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel. And David administered judgment and justice to all his people. Joab, the son of Zeruhi was over the army. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilad, was the recorder. Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Amalek, the son of Abiathar, were the priest. Sareah was the scribe. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites, which were the bodyguards. And David's sons were the chief ministers. This is the word of the Lord. Well, for the third sermon in a row in our study through 2 Samuel, I remind you briefly this evening that the chapter we're coming out of, 2 Samuel chapter 7, is one of the most pivotal passages of Scripture in all the Bible. 
In it, we have been studying for the last two weeks how that God made a covenant promise to David that his kingdom and his throne will be established forever. And through that covenant with David, we understand that it is ultimately fulfilled and perfectly fulfilled in the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ, who is the son of David, the son of of Abraham. I bring this up once again about chapter 7 because we need to note that chapter 8 is a thematic connection to the preceding chapter. It's a thematic connection. Consider uh, the opening words in verse number 1. You have your Bibles open there. Look at what it says there in verse number 1. Simply after this, after this, after what? After chapter 7. But we need to understand the connection, again, that is thematic. So these words after this should not be taken in strict chronological terms. Rather, after this shows what happened with David on account of the covenant promises that God made to him in chapter 7. So, continuing from the theme that we looked at in chapter 7, chapter 8 is simply about answered prayer and fulfilled promises. Answered prayer and fulfilled promises. We looked at last week in chapter 7 how the king teaches us how to pray. And we had a whole message on prayer. Well, now we're seeing that after that prayer, after this, God's answering the prayer. He's fulfilling the promises. Remember, again, briefly, God rejected David's notion to build a house for God. And instead, God promised David that he would build a house for him, that he would build him a dynasty. David then responded to God by turning God's promises, the promise to build him a dynasty, into prayer. He asked God to do what he said he would do. And so we move from that into chapter 8 where it summarizes for us another level of God's fulfilled promise to establish the kingdom of God and to do it through David. I bring us to pause here for a moment just to remind us that any success in the establishment of David's kingdom is on the account of God's covenant promise that he made with David. It's important that we understand that. That any success in the establishment of David's kingdom is on account of the covenant that God makes with David. So it should not surprise us that as we come to chapter 8, we see success with David's kingdom. Because that's exactly what God promised. I bring up this thematic connection because if you focus too much in reading, especially the book of 1 and 2 Samuel, if you focus on this being chronological, you're going to get really confused at times because it's not a purely chronological book. It handles themes, major highlights that sometimes happen before we've read them, sometimes they happen later, and this is an example of one, because what we have here in chapter 8 is a summary of all of David's battles. Some of these battles happened before he ever became king of Israel, and some of these battles occurred during his reign. So, so, So again, we don't look at it chronologically, we look at it thematically, that this is about answered prayer. He is showing us, based upon the covenant that God made with David, the narrator is showing us that God 
did what he promised. He brings us into the next level of answered prayer, fulfilled promises. And of course, all of these victories that we're reading about, they all signal his success. It all is about establishing the kingdom that God will eventually bring through the measure of Jesus Christ. So let's outline it in three simple ways. Number one, how David came to the throne, all right? How David came to the throne. Well, we've, we've chronicled, this, chronicled this in our study, haven't we? If we're asking the question, how did David come to the throne, that's what we've been looking at for the last year and a half, if, if not longer. I'm a little past my times. I think this is somewhere around 49 or 50 sermons in First and Second Samuel. A long, long time ago in a church service far away, we began First Samuel. We've been chronicling all along how David comes to the throne. But again, chapter 8 is a summary. And the clear answer to how David came to the throne is stated in two verses. It's stated in verse 6 as well as verse 13. Look at it first in verse 6. So the Lord preserved David wherever he went. How did David come to the throne? Because the Lord preserved him wherever he went. The Lord preserved him wherever he went. We see it again mentioned in verse 13. And the Lord preserved David wherever he went. The Lord kept David safe. The Lord gave him victory. The Lord preserved him. That's how David came to the throne. Because it was God's will for David to come to the throne. And if it's God's purpose and God's will, nothing will stop that. Even the enemies of God and the enemies of David. You see, that's the thing about serving God's kingdom. Is that when we serve the kingdom of God, we have to recognize that the kingdom of God has enemies. It had enemies then. It has enemies now. And so David has enemies in every direction. We see that in the opening verses. He has the Philistines to the west of him, the Moabites to the east Uh, Zoba and Syria to the north, the Edomites to the south. In every direction you turn, there are enemies to the kingdom of God. By the way, much of that geography has not changed even today. When you surround the people and the land, they're they're constantly surrounded with, with enemies, God's people that is. However, however, the Lord kept David safe. The Lord gave him victory with each of these people. In verse 1, just notice it. After this came to pass, after this it came to pass rather that David attacked the Philistines, he subdued them. Verse 2, then he defeated Moab. Uh, Verse 3, then he defeated Hadad Ezer. Verse 5, he defeated the Syrians. He put garrisons in Damascus and they became his servants and the Lord preserved him during that time. Then we fast forward to verse 13 and we find that David uh, killed more Syrians in the valley of Saul. He put Gerrits in Edom, so he defeated the Edomites. And again, the Lord preserved David wherever he went. God is giving him victory. God is keeping him safe. God is answering his prayers. He's fulfilling his purpose. God said, I'm making a covenant with you, David. And the covenant is your throne will be established forever. And now we see that success, that that coming to fruition. And how do we apply this even in our own life today? Well, we look at examples like this in Scripture, and we must be reminded that nothing, nothing can stop the purposes of God. Absolutely nothing. Not even the enemies that surround His people in every direction. Nothing can stop the purposes of God. 
When God makes a promise and decrees a purpose, then God will bring it to pass. Remember, this is part of the covenant promise. Everything that we're reading here in chapter 8, it's a part of the covenant promise. You're, you're there in chapter 8. Just Some of you might already have it right there in front of you. Others may have to turn back just one page. But, but look at chapter 7 and verse 10. Chapter 7 and verse 10. God in his covenant to David says, I will appoint a place for my people Israel. He's talking about an area, a land, a place. I will appoint a place for them. I'm going to plant them there that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any longer. And so now we see David defeating the enemies who would have moved them. David's kingdom was the beginning of the fulfillment of this promise that will be perfectly fulfilled at the coming of Jesus Christ. So this is part of the covenant. And it's a reminder that God is able to save his king. And he's able to save his people from every enemy that threatens them. Let me give you an example of this right now where we live. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 33, Jesus makes a promise to the disciples and subsequently to all of us who follow him today. He said to them and to us, I will build my church. That is a promise. It is a guarantee. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So we don't have to hope that happens. We can know that's going to happen. So as we learned last week, we take a promise, we turn it into prayer. We pray, Lord, build your church. And, and start right here on Plaza Road Extension with Laurel Baptist Church. Build your church so that the gates of hell will not come against your purposes, your plans. It's a promise. So when Jesus sends us out to go into all the world and make disciples and promises to be with us as we go, we have to ask ourselves the question, can anything stop that promise? Can anything stop the promise that disciples will be made, that churches will be established, that God will be with us even now as we meet together and preach his word? What an awesome thought that we have in this gathering. We're going to talk about that more this Sunday as I give you a little commercial on core conviction number two, and that is gathering together. There is a special emblem of God's presence when his church comes together. It's a part of the fulfillment here that the Lord is with us even now. Right now, the Lord is with us. He's not just in here, but he's in here collectively, corporately, as this church comes together to preach the gospel. It's a promise. But sometimes on those blogs you follow or those Bible studies you're involved in or those Fox News anchors you watch will say things such as Christianity is dying. The church will not survive this age in which we live. So when we hear that, who are we going to believe? Are we going to believe the pundits? Are we going to believe the authors? Are we going to believe the bloggers and the podcasters who say the church is not going to make it? Or are we going to believe Jesus who said, I will build the church and not even hell will be able to stop it? 
This is the issue at hand here. Do we believe others or do we believe the promises of God? Because God will save his people from every enemy that threatens them. Brings us back to where we're at. How did David come to the throne? Well, the Lord preserved him wherever he went. The Lord kept him safe. The Lord gave him victory. Now, now before I move on, let me just address quickly the violence of such things that we read here. We've, We've addressed this before in our study of Samuel. Because for some of it, it really bothers us to equate the victory of God with such war and violence that we see before us. And I'm not going to take as much time as I have in previous messages about this subject, but let me just say a couple of things. Number one, death and violence should bother us. It should bother us. I think much of the violence that we even experience here in our modern world today and through this culture is because we've made it into fun experience, experiments through video games. And so when we see it happening in real life, it no longer bothers us the way the nature of the heart should be bothered. So we read things, we hear things, we watch things transpire before in life, and it really doesn't move us very much because that's what we do on our video games. But death and violence should bother us. God himself has no pleasure in the death of even the wicked people. Ezekiel chapter 18 tells us that. God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So if God doesn't take pleasure in it, then who are we to delight in it on any level? We don't delight in human suffering because God doesn't delight in it. So if it bothers you to see all the death and violence, it's... That's okay, it should bother you. But as students of the Bible, our job is to learn from the text of Scripture. It is not our job to make independent moral judgments about what we read. In other words, the manner in which God pours out his judgment on unrighteous people is solely based upon his righteous actions. He is perfect. He is holy. He has God. He has God. He has the right to do whatever he wants to do. And what he chooses to do is always a reflection of perfect righteousness. We have to remember that. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that God may have approved of every way in which David carried this out, but it does mean that God brought judgment on the enemies of his kingdom. It does mean that. I think Calvin helps us with this. Uh, Calvin said, The stringency which David exercised against the enemy here ought not to be considered cruelty, but to be the just judgment of God since they had abused his long patience and had mocked him. So we don't condemn David or even question God's acts of judgment here. We accept the clear teaching of the Bible that it is within the realm of God's perfect and holy character to bring judgment on all rebellion against him, however he chooses. And that's clearly what's happening here. These are unrighteous people who are experiencing the rebellion of God at the hand of his servant David, I leave enough of that with you to chew on for yourself. This is, this is how David comes to the throne. The Lord preserved him. All right, second thing, how David honored the Lord. How David honored the Lord. Well, throughout the chapter, we see David bringing the spoils back to Jerusalem, don't we? But, but it gets real specific in verse 7. Look at it in verse 7. David took the shield of gold that had belonged to the servants of Hadad-Ezer, brought them to Jerusalem. He also from Beda, from Barathai, cities of Hadad-Ezer, King David 
uh, took a large amount of bronze. When Toy, king of Hamath, uh, you, you, you kids didn't know there were toys in the Bible, did you? Here's one right here. This is our toy story right here, verse 9. When Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated all the army of Hadad-Ezer, then Toy sent Joram, his son, to King David to greet him and bless him. Now, I love this, all right? David is out there, right? I mean, he's whooping everybody, taking names. I mean, he's just destroying. All of a sudden, this king gets ahead of the game a little bit. Let's let's send gifts to David before he ever gets to us. (laughs) Let's let him know we're good. We're good with what he's doing. And that's exactly what verse 10 says, uh, uh, Toy uh, sent his son to David to greet him, bless him, because he fought against Hadad-Ezer and defeated him, and Hadad-Ezer had been, a, been at war with Toy, and so he's helping him by defeating one of his in- enemies. And so what does Joram do? Joram uh, comes to Jerusalem to meet King David, and he's bringing him all kinds of silver, gold, and bronze. So what's happening here? What's happening is that all of this wealth is being brought to Jerusalem for King David's use. Some, from the generosity of friends, as we see with Toy, and of course, most from the spoils of war. The question is, what's David going to do with all of this wealth that's being brought to him? Because most kings keep it for themselves. And they keep it for themselves to puff up their own values. Or our own value, their own worth, their own status in the world. However, notice what happens in verse number 11. The Bible says that King David dedicated these things to the Lord. He dedicated them to the Lord. Along with the silver and gold that he had dedicated from all the nations which he had subdued. All of it. Everything that came to him. All this increase. All this wealth. He gave it back to the Lord. From Syria, Moab, Ammon, Philistines, Amalek, Hadad, Ezer. All of it. All of it. He dedicated it to the Lord. He, he honored the Lord with the increase of his kingdom. Out of the abundance of God's victory to him, David set these things aside to be used for the Lord's purposes. You see, David recognized what you and I need to recognize over and over again in our lives. That everything we have belongs to God. Everything. This wasn't his wealth. This was God's wealth. Everything that is in David's possession belongs to God first and foremost. It was God's covenant to make him successful. It wasn't David's way of success. David didn't. God did all of this. And so everything that is being brought to him is not David's. It's God's first and foremost. And this is how the kingdom of God still works today. Everything you have, everything I have, it belongs to God. See, the Bible doesn't teach our ownership over things. The Bible teaches our stewardship over things. God is the owner. We are the stewards. God, in this case, is the owner of it all. David is the manager. He is the steward of these resources. And how we use our resources, how we spend them, how we give them, it's all in reflection of belonging to God because it's His, not ours. Proverbs 3, 9, honor the Lord with your possessions. Everything you have, honor the Lord with it. And with the first fruits of all your increase. Jesus taught in Matthew 6, don't, 
Don't worry, saying, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? Now, some of you are worried about that right now because it's already after 8 o'clock and you haven't had supper yet and you're hungry. It's not the same thing about worrying about when I'm going to finish so you can eat. This is like worrying about where all this stuff's going to come from. Where, where are we going to get food? What are we going to, how are we going to live? What are we going to wear? No, don't worry about that. Your heavenly Father knows that you need all of these things. You seek first the kingdom of God, and then all these things will be added to you. Here's what's really cool to me. And again, I'm just going to give you some scripture, and you're going to have to study this out for yourself. All of this wealth that David is setting aside for God's purpose, all of these things, these possessions that he's dedicating for the Lord's use, it's not just going to be mentioned in chapter 8 and never brought up again. These are the exact things that will be used for the building of the temple that his son Solomon will erect for the glory of God. The exact same things. In fact, we read about it in 1 Kings chapter 7 and verse 51. And in case some of you are wondering where I'm going after 2 Samuel, let me just tell you, we're not going to go to the 1 Kings right away, all right? We're going to take a break a little bit from this on Wednesdays. But in 1 Kings chapter 7, here's what the Word of God says, verse 50, 51. So all the work that King Solomon had done for the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in the things which his father David had dedicated, the silver and the gold and all the furnishings. And he put them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. I love here. That what David gave and dedicated to the Lord during his lifetime was used in the next generation of God's kingdom purposes. David was giving after he was living. It's a reminder that we can never outgive God and that even making preparation for our possessions, for future use in God's kingdom purposes is for his glory. We never know how God may use those things. I, I, I think it fits appropriately here. I'll not go into a lot of details, but when Miss Wanda Pender died several months ago, it blessed my heart so much. She, she called Jared and I, along with her sister, and said, Pastor, I, I need to tell you some things. And so I thought we were just headed to talk about the funeral, which we did. But when we got there, she said, Pastor, the Lord has been so good to me. And I've tried my best my whole life to honor him with everything I have. But I'm, I'm leaving a lot behind. And I want God to use it even after I'm gone. So here's what, here's what I'm going to do. And she looked at Jared. She said, Jared, you're lakeside. You're going to get X amount of my estate. And pastor, you're going to get X amount of my estate. And Billy Graham Evangelistic Association is going to get some. And my nephew, who's a pastor, they're going to get some. I just, I want every bit of it to be used for the Lord's work for, for my church. I said, Miss Wanda, don't. Don't you have, and of course, you know, most of you know her husband had passed. And 
her son had already passed. I said, is there not anybody that you want to leave any of these things behind? She said, oh, pastor, you know, Miss Wanda, oh, pastor, my family has too much money anyway. They don't need more to waste. I want God to have it. I don't know fully what that means for us yet. It's not the first time people have thought about giving to the kingdom of God even after they live. There have been others through the years in ministry of our church who have done the same. Maybe some of you, even in your personal planning, is thinking, I, wanna, I want my possessions. I want, I want it to honor God in some way, in some capacity. This is what David's doing. He's bringing it all in. He's dedicating it to the Lord. And when does the Lord use it? After David's dead. After he's gone. This is how the kingdom of God is to function. We are to honor King Jesus with the increase that he brings to us. And in so doing, we are acknowledging that we are a part of his kingdom, not that he is a part of ours. How do you view it tonight? That Jesus is a part of your kingdom or that you are a part of his? It's worth considering. So how did David come to the throne? The Lord preserved him. How did he honor the Lord? He dedicated his increase to the Lord. All right, finally, how David ruled the kingdom. How David ruled the kingdom. Verse 15, here's the answer. So David reigned over all of Israel, and he administered judgment and justice to all his people. This is a summary of how David and his administration ruled the kingdom with judgment and justice, with with equity. You see, God cares about justice. He cares about righteousness and equity in in our human communities in which we live. Psalm 33, 5 says, God loves righteousness and justice. Psalm 89, 14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. Uh, Psalm 99, 4, the king's strength loves justice. He has established equity. He's executing justice and righteousness in all of Israel. God cares about justice. He cares about equity. And so we who take God seriously must take this character trait of God seriously. The phrase here in verse 15, judgment and justice, is best understood as judgment that is just. It's, it's one of those things that commentators will even tell you that in the, in the Hebrew language, it's hard to find English descriptions of a phrase like this. So it reads like it's two things, judgment and justice, but it's, it's probably best to understand it as judgment that is just, all right? It's about the actions and behavior of someone being right and righteous, righteous. So, so what the narrator is saying of David as king is that he acted to make things right. That's how he ruled. He ruled by acting to make things right, just. But not just for some of the people. Look at the next phrase. He acted to make things right for all the people. For all the people. This is equity. So we have justice. We have Equity for all. In our Pledge of Allegiance to the United States flag, we use a phrase that says we are a nation where, uh, did, you, did you have to quote the Pledge of Allegiance when you got your citizenship? 
Uh, so when you quote the Pledge of Allegiance, the Pledge of Allegiance to the United States of America, it says we are a, a nation where there is liberty and justice for all, right? Liberty and justice for all. Liberty and justice for all. Now, I mean no disrespect to this wonderful country that you and I live in. But liberty and justice for all in America is just an idea. It's not a reality. It's an idea. It's an idea we stand behind. It's an idea that we fight for. It's an idea by which we pursue by living in this country and being a part of the framework in which it is established. But it's not necessarily a reality. There is not liberty and justice for all people who live in the United States of America. But think with me just for a moment. Can you imagine actually living in a kingdom where there was true justice for all people? I'm talking about for this moment of time, there was a kingdom where every child conceived survives the womb. Where every person is regarded as equal in the eyes of kingdom authorities. Where, where, where every time you stand before kingdom officials, you are guaranteed to be treated justly and rightly, regardless, regardless of the color of your skin or the status of wealth that you may or may not have. For this brief moment of time, David's kingdom was ruled in this fashion. And it foreshadowed the coming day when Jesus Christ will rule and reign his perfect kingdom in justice and equity. I don't have time to take you there, but Psalm 101, perhaps you want to write it down. Kathleen says, I need to do more of this. She loves it when we see different psalms corresponding to where we are in our study. So here's one for you. Psalm 101 shows us exactly what kind of king David was, how he ruled with justice for all people. But let me ask you this question. Where should we find justice and equity today? In the church. In the church. This is what the church should be. The church is a place that reflects the kingdom of God. Now, we reflect it imperfectly, but nothing comes as close to the kingdom of God than when the church comes together in this kind of fashion. But we do look for the day when it will be perfect. But until that day comes, the only answer to all the injustices and the other wrongs that we experience on this earth, the only answer is not getting a different official in a place of service. That's not the answer. It can help, but it's not the answer. No, the only answer is in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The good news that there is a kingdom far greater than any kingdom of this earth, and it is the kingdom of God. This is how he ruled, with justice and equity, truly, with liberty and justice for everyone in his kingdom. Now, the closing verses, and we are done, it shows us that David's kingdom was well-ordered and structured. Look at it with me. Joab was over the army. Okay, he's the general. Jehoshaphat was the recorder. This was like a public records official is our best guess on this. Uh, Zadok and Ahimelech were the priests. Uh, and they were the priests because they were rightful descendants of Aaron, so they were fit for the job just as the law required. 
Sariah functioned like the king's private secretary. You might view him as like this chief correspondent or maybe better yet, a press secretary. That's who he was. That's what he did. Uh, Benaiah was like the head of the secret service because the Cherethites and the Pelethites were all of David's bodyguards. And Benaiah was in charge of them. I wonder if they wore sunglasses and robes. Like our guys wear sunglasses and black suits. I don't know how it looked, but that's what they did. And David's sons were the chief ministers. It's, it's a good reminder, by the way, just that the fact that God mentions this here. It's a good reminder that in all that we do, whether it's our church, our family, our government, our society, everything that we do should be well-ordered and structured. That's why we go to the New Testament, and we see a lot of detail about the order and structure of the church. And there's order and structure for the family. There's order and structure for the government. It's why we ought to do all things with excellence. It's why we do like the vacuum line straight. It's why we do want the chairs in order. It's why we want the walls to be clean the best that we can, because everything that we do ought to be done with excellence, with good order and structure, and that's how David is ruling the kingdom that God is giving him responsibility over. So what? So you've given us a lot of stuff, Pastor, but what in the world am I supposed to do with this? How am I supposed to chew on this when I eat my Wheaties tonight before going to bed? Well, that's always the question, isn't it? So what? I take you back to what we said at the beginning, to remember that chapter 8 is about answered prayer. It's about God fulfilling his promises. It's about seeing through the foreshadowing of Christ how God's kingdom is to operate. And one day, His perfect kingdom will come. Maybe tomorrow. Maybe next week. One day it's coming. But until it comes, we wait. We watch. And we do all that we can to serve the king.